topic is narcissism. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> most of the, a lot of the information I'll be using is a great, is two great 20th century psychologists. One by the name of Heinz Kohut, who's the founder of the psychology of self and was uh, really highly regarded for his work on narcissistic personality disorder and uh, his other concepts of narcissism. And also the other, James Masterson, who wrote uh, The Search for the Real Self and was the founder of the Payne Whitney Clinic and a uh, very, very influential pair of uh, psychological theorists, and also we'll be talking about the Buddha's insights into the self. So, a lot of us like to believe that we don't have narcissistic tendencies. Oh, I'm not a narcissist. <laughs> that, that person's a narcissist. Me, me. But uh, actually, that shows that we don't really know what we're talking about, because actually, if you don't have any narcissistic tendencies, then you're probably uh, definitely a narcissist, or uh, <laughs> you've got borderline personality disorder. Uh, so <laughs> I wouldn't opt for that. Uh, basically, Koa theorized that there's healthy narcissism, which is now the de facto standard that every psychologist works from, that there's healthy narcissism, which is basically that sense that we can accomplish things in the world, that we can get things done, that people will care about our ideas, that we have some efficacy, that we can empathize with others in a meaningful way, that we can play a constructive role in the world. If you don't have those tendencies, you're going to desperately try to get them from somebody else. The theory goes that if a parent actually gives the child consistent messages of love, care, being prized and valued, that a child will not grow up narcissist, but will grow up, in fact, with healthy narcissism that the old myth that narcissist personality disorder, NPD we'll call it, comes from a parent that's doting or is over-effusive in praise is actually generally a myth. That's not how narcissism comes about. It's actually sad that for many years parents were discouraged from being effusive and uh, rewarding and deeply uh, connected to their child and supportive in a way that was very vocal because there was for a while some fear that it might lead to narcissistic tendencies. That's not the case. When a child feels an underlying degree of I'll be loved, I'll be cared about, I'll be prized, I have something of value, then um, that's not the causes and conditions that unhealthy narcissism comes from. In those cases where the child does feel loved, does feel duly praised, does 
feel a sense uh, that it has something special, it will be able to empathize with others. It will feel confident that it can achieve things in life. It's, it's very important to have these, um, this sense. And we don't stop in childhood. For the rest of our lives, we are constantly looking for what's called healthy narcissistic supplies, which is we do things in the world, and if we are smart about it, we take our time, notice our accomplishments, soak it in so that we renew the belief that we can be effective in the world. Unfortunately, today's capitalist workplaces often short-circuit the amount of time that people feel permitted to feel good about their work. They're shunted off to the next project of the next project. They don't feel the permission to say, oh, look what I made. And that's a shame because without it, people are slowly beaten down out of the sense that there's something meaningful that they can accomplish in the world. Now, rather than being the result of um, overpraise, there is some small thought that, to some degree, children who can't transcend the stage where they feel that the parent is always available might play some role in it. There's generally a stage of around two years of age where children up to that point have had all of their needs met by a caretaker. Then there's this point where the caretaker starts realizing that the child can move around on its own and begins to get interested in their own life to a degree and the child is exploring more. And in such cases, the child has to begin to navigate through the world but also realize that it's not the center invariably of the caretaker's attention. That's though losing, that theory is losing a lot of favor. Pretty much today people believe that narcissistic personality disorder <coughs> tends to come from caretaking that is not consistent in the way that the child is treated. The parent will give wildly varying messages, one moment saying, you're wonderful, you can do anything, you're terrific, you're talented, and the next moment, the parent will say, why the hell did you do that? What do you think you're doing? What's the matter with you? I can't believe you're my child, blah, blah, blah. So, where there's no consistency of, I love you no matter what, you're safe, you're secure, no matter what you're wanted, where there's varying messages jumping from extremely positive to you're talented, we love you, you're wonderful, to what is the matter with you, who do you think you are, very threatening language, turning away. Uh, the child feels that it's um, done something that jeopardizes its entire relationship with the parent. So, now what happens in this case is very interesting. All children are born without a sense of self. In essence, self is the view you have of, your, of who you are, your capabilities, uh, your, in essence, your nature, your traits, your tendencies in any moment is your view of yourself, your view of your identity. 
and children don't have it, they look primarily to the caretaker, the mother, the father, to provide it with a sense of who am I, really, who can I be? And the child listens very, very carefully to every message that the parent gives it and internalizes that message, constructing a sense of self. The sense of self is not born at first by its actual deeds, but by what the parent tells it. Eventually, in a healthy situation, if the parent gives steady enough messages, the child will eventually let go of believing what the parent says about it and will begin to construct a sense of self from its actual actions in the world. It will begin to see what it's accomplished, its capabilities, what it can do. So a child at around two is constructing its sense of identity from what the mother or the father says. But eventually by six, when socialization in schools happen, then the child begins to note, ooh, some kids like me, some kids don't, I'm good at math, I'm bad at this. And it grows more and more to the point where in a healthy situation, the child explores and finds competencies and so forth and builds up its own story. But, uh-oh, what happens in the case where the child is at the very beginning of this not given a predictable baseline sense of identity and is in fact given wildly different, disparaging, sometimes effusive, unpredictable, unalignable messages? Well, what happens is the child will continue to look for a sense of identity externally from what other people say rather than from actual lived experience. Are you following me? So in most cases the child will make the feel permitted to eventually construct its sense of who am I from what it actually does. But the narcissist can't do that because they were given such differing messages that they at first found it difficult to construct any sense of identity or self. And so they constantly look to others to provide it. Now what a secondary mechanism that narcissists do is they create what's known as a false self. In other words, they find all the things that their parents praise them for and they rally around those things. I'm good at sports. I'm good at the piano. I'm my parents say I'm funny, and they will go around and repeat those behaviors over and over and over again. And they'll repress anything that reminds them of the times that their parents were not supportive. This leaves them again with a sense of great emptiness, because they're repressing a large part of their experience, and holding up to the world a very limited sense of identity. And so they constantly need, as a result, people to fuel them with narcissistic supplies. They don't get the narcissistic supplies from their own actions. They need people to applaud them. Narcissists are constantly in search of an audience. Now what are the results when uh, we develop this false self 
that we show to others and we demand approval, there's a sense, one, of superiority that is sought after. Because that keeps the repressed feelings of any form of inferiority which has been associated with blame and shame and guilt and all the frightening things that the child heard. It's a coping strategy that the child starts with that might be charming in a four or five year old, but when a fully grown adult continues to run around demanding that everybody else approve of him, you know, applaud his endeavors, his skills, uh, then it's less charming. Now, if you were listening carefully, you might notice that I dropped the gender in there. I said him, and there's a reason for that. Narcissists tend to skew almost 80% male. Why is this? Interestingly enough, the research shows that while there might just as well be as many female narcissists in the world, they are punished by our sexist society anytime they try to seek narcissistic supplies in the workforce or in social settings. So where men get away for, look at me, look at me, look at me, admire me, women in our culture, when they show much of the same exact tendencies, are punished and are basically informed that they're only allowed to receive narcissistic supplies from uh, in very limited domains. Narcissists find any kind of criticism painful. They can't construct a sense of self alone. They regulate their sense of identity by seeking constant approval for their inauthentic selves, which means they generally exaggerate their roles. If you work with a narcissist, he might take credit for something you know you did. He might very well uh, e exploit others. He will probably have conservative political views. It's true. They tend to skew Republican. Uh, <laughs> they find establishing empathy with other people very, very difficult. And they are unable to enjoy the successes or views of other people because it threatens their attention, their, health, their narcissistic supplies. So, I would like to counteract the belief, the sort of black and white belief that we either have it or we don't. In my experience, and I do one-on-one -on -one work for now for years, with now, I've done it with hundreds of people, and in my experience, it's more like a gradation. In certain areas of life, we all can suddenly feel uncertain of our self, our skills, our abilities, and we can, in those limited domains, suddenly be triggered into narcissistic behaviors. So the idea that most of us don't have it, but but there's a whole bunch of white Republican males out there that do, is I think actually a bit of a, uh, 
an easy pass for most of us. I grew up in a family where my mom was pretty much the head of the household, the bread earner, and was very, very uh, consistent in her caretaking. Her, she was very, very patient and, and set a very, very even-tempered bar of praise to make us feel that we had some agency in the world. So when actually I worked, uh, I tend to gravitate uh, throughout my life, I tend to gravitate to prefer working with and for women. My dad was a alcoholic who one moment could be effusive and the next moment could be belligerent, belittling, and violent. And so at times when I've worked with men, especially men that I tend to believe are narcissistic men, I become very easily triggered myself into becoming, uh, feeling insecure at times and wanting attention and wanting to get in their face at worst comes to push comes to shove. So I've seen in my own endeavors that depending upon each parent and depending upon our lived experience, we each can have narcissistic tendencies triggered within us. And even if we don't really perceive of ourselves to have been born with any NPD and we think that we are well-rounded, it's important to know that Coat and Masterson believe that to maintain any healthy sense of um, skills and abilities, we have to continually provide ourselves with healthy supplies. If we don't, if we allow ourselves to drift too far from any sense of recognition, awareness, approval from ourselves of our, our good deeds, if we don't acknowledge our hard labor, the things that we accomplish in the world, then we too can, over time, starve ourselves of the healthy narcissistic supplies we need and find ourselves becoming increasingly seeking a sense of inner self and ability from other people. You follow me? We need to constantly acknowledge and drink in our skills, our abilities. The Buddha said as much. There's a myth that the Buddha was trying to get rid of self the Buddha said, the only thing the Buddha said about the self uh, in terms of that was that you can't find a static self that doesn't change. That's the only thing he said about non-self, that you cannot locate an unchanging self. But he said at any given moment of time, of course you have a self. Right now you have a identity, it's just that that identity is changing. And it's because of the fact that it's changing dependent upon how we act, what we do, our roles in the world, how we behave, what thoughts we think, that the Buddha said we should take care of the self. We should do things that will create a sense of, a, a strong sense of self that will allow us to um, perform and be confident and helpful. The Buddha said that thinking a lot about self, memorably in the Sabhasava Sutta, he said that thinking a lot about self tends to make self be more and more uh, uh, unstable and uh, belittling. 
And this has been borne out by what's called negativity bias. The mind, the more we think about things, the more we tend towards the negative. The mind is like, uh, as they say, uh, flypaper for bad memories, and it's like uh, a sieve for good memories. So if you tend to try to construct yourself by thinking about yourself a lot, guess what? You'll tend to remember your errors, your mistakes, the things you didn't do, the accomplishments that you didn't make, the goals that weren't attained. That's no way you want to build a sense of self. No. But you can build a strong sense of self by constantly, one, focusing in the present on doing what's skillful, and then two, really soaking it in, really <coughs> taking the time to soak in the positive actions that you've undertaken. According to um, some neuroscience research, and it, it changes slightly, but the gist of it is that it takes about a half second for a negative event to register deeply in your mind because you have a special memory system to remember every single unfucking unfucking pleasant event of your life. Anything that goes wrong, you'll remember it. In a half second, it's there, lodged in the amygdala. But for any other positive experience, you use the -the run-of-the-mill, plain memory systems which are set up not to really remember emotion. So positive events take you about 12 to 15 seconds of holding in your mind, seeping it in, letting it sink in, that you've done something worthy before it will become part of your sense of self in the future. So we've got to work on, if we want to build a positive sense of self, we've got to spend 20 times longer than the negative experiences for the positive ones to sink in. Remember that. There's a reason after each meditation I say, let's take a moment to sink in what we've done. Because the mind is not set up to remember the positives of life. The Buddha, in one famous story with King Pasanadi and Queen Malika, they're lying in bed together. Well, they're not. I just like to add that in. I have. I like to think that they just had sex. I don't know what they were doing. But anyway, in the story, Queen Malika says to the king, and it's meant to be shock, shocking. The queen says, "You know, I've been thinking, and throughout the entire universe, there's not any other being I hold dearer to myself than me, and that includes you." <laughs> and that's supposed to be like quite uh, an outrageous thing to say to a king. But the king says, you know, I was thinking exactly the same thing, that in all the universe, there's no one I hold dearer than myself. And they go to the Buddha, and they fully expect, because the description is that they're sort of sheepish, uh, and they fully expect to have the Buddha be a little bit scolding about this. Far from it. The Buddha's response is very, very interesting. He says, I, and this is the Buddha speaking, I have visited all directions of the universe with my mind, and I have not found anyone dearer to me than myself. Self is likewise as dear to other people. One who loves oneself finds it more difficult to harm another. 
What he's saying is if we have a sense of love for ourselves and we cherish our lives, it's far, far more difficult to cause harm and violence. Because people who do cause harm and violence invariably don't like themselves very much. In fact, they often hate themselves. And they're trying to expunge that feeling onto the people around them. The Buddha said in the Dhammapada, his summary of his entire path, one should hold onto one's self dearly, not neglect it. Even for the sake of another, no matter how great, one should take care of one's self. In other words, we should do the things and reflect on the things that build up a positive sense of who we are. There are ten recollections the Buddha came up with as skillful ways to reflect and build up senses of agency and ability. And three of them, I've found, are extremely useful in this practice. So for the last five minutes of the talk, I'm just going to give you, lead you through a very brief recollection meditation based on the Buddha's teachings of Kaganusati, Sila Nusati, and Deva Nusati. So, just find a comfortable seated position. And closing the eyes and Taking a nice full breath in again, lifting the shoulders once again, and with the out breath, just releasing the shoulders as far down as you can so that there's this real sense of, again, allowing the mind to reconnect with the body, softening the belly. So in the, what I like to think of as the movie screen in your mind, the place where you see memories, the place where you see fantasies, that spot, some people see it behind the forehead or behind the eyes, wherever it is for you, your inner multiplex. So bring to mind your image. It could be an image of yourself today or from any other period in your life. And I'd like you to bring to mind some of your skills, visualizing even yourself doing those skills. So if you have musical skills, if you can play a guitar, a piano, God forbid the trumpet. <laughs> no, it's a wonderful instrument. Whatever it is, uh, Just holding that image.
if there's something else you love to do, biking, swimming, gardening, drawing, painting, collage, cooking, And let go of the idea that you have to be a professional at this skill or somebody that even any sense of perfectionist tendencies, evaluative tendencies, just bring to mind skills that you have learned, that you enjoy, that make you feel that you're capable of learning and growing. Skills of writing. Knowledge you've picked up. So let those thoughts go, and now I'd like you to bring to mind another set of recollections of your skillfulness and virtue, what the Buddha called Sila Nusati, reflecting on times you've been helpful, you've been attentive when others have needed, where you've shown up for someone. The positive qualities you have. The times when it was easy to have told a lie or gossip or something, but you didn't, you refrained. You were honest in a kind way. You refrained from taking the easy way out. You might have told the truth when others didn't. Now you can let those go. Bring to mind the feeling of being appreciated, 
seeing with your image someone who cares about you, someone who appreciates, who cherishes you or has shown care, someone who acknowledges your importance. And again, just let a sense of worth sink in. We really need to let the beneficial sink in. Finally, for one last reflection, what would it feel like right now if I really believed that there is nothing wrong with me, nothing to fix, nothing to improve, nothing needed to attain, nothing broken, what would that feel like? How would it feel in the body? How would my body feel if I really felt there was nothing wrong, nothing damaged? How would it feel in my mind? gently let your image go. So the Buddha said that these healthy reflections of self, they can be found in the present with what we do, but they also can be conjured up by the mind in what we just did, is reflections, meta practice. I offer them to you as a way to uh, help you build up a sense of, a positive sense of capability, heart, sense of self that can achieve and attain the things that are important to you in the world so that you won't need to get your sense of worth by chasing after people demanding that they give you love trying to get orange juice from the hardware store 
as it were. We can develop those supplies that way. So thank you for listening. I hope there was something worthwhile in there.